This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Regenerative medicine sector won major product approvals, advanced a growing pipeline of therapies and development, and enjoyed a surge of investment in 2018. As excitement grows about the potential of these therapies, the industry is also wrestling with complex policy issues that could determine how sustainable these businesses will be and whether patients will ever get to benefit from the potential cures that may soon be within reach. We spoke to Matt Patterson, chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, about the state of the industry, ongoing debates about pricing and payment models, and what the industry will need to do to educate patients and policymakers about this emerging area of medicine. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk to you today in your capacity as chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. You're also CEO of Odentes, which is developing gene therapies for rare diseases. I think anyone who takes a look at the area of regenerative medicine today has to be a, a little taken with the size and scope it's already grown. As a matter of definition, when we talk about regenerative medicine, what does that include? Well, it's, uh, of course, something that I agree with. It's been a remarkable uh, just few years, uh, and every year the momentum in the space seems to increase significantly, which is really exciting. It's why, as a field, um, regenerative medicine and gene and cell therapy technology in particular uh, have become the source, maybe the greatest source of innovation in our field and biotechnology and, uh, and the source of great promise for patients with a wide range of disorders, many of which we've had no ability to treat in the past. So uh, regenerative medicine, uh, it has evolved, I suppose, when it comes to the definition. Historically, I suppose people would probably think of it in terms of stem cell science and the ability to use stem cells for therapeutics. But uh, in today's lingo, it broadly covers a, a range of therapies, um, including cell therapy products like uh, CAR-Ts for oncology targets, um, uh, gene therapy, which can be done both in vivo and ex vivo, uh, often with a focus on rare genetic disorders today. Uh, and there are many interesting uh, tissue engineering products as well uh, that have uh, meaningful potential for a lot of patients that also fits into the regenerative medicine category. So uh, those are all uh, categories of importance uh, 
uh, to us, uh, to the organization Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, and, and so those are the areas that we focus on and, and are trying to do our very best to help patients get access to. Matt, perhaps you can characterize where we're at uh, in, in terms of numbers. How, how big an industry are we talking about? How how broad is the clinical pipeline today? And, and what kind of capital is, is coming into the industry? Sure. Well, it's been a, a, another year of remarkable progress, and uh, the field today includes more than 900 companies that are active in regenerative medicine fields uh, that we've talked about earlier, gene and cell therapies, tissue engineering, developing therapeutics for patients, um, geographically spread, um, heavy in North America, no surprise, but strong presence in Europe and Israel, Asia, uh, and other locations. So it's certainly a global industry from that perspective. Uh, clinical trials, uh, the numbers are, are really impressive. Uh, more than a 1,000 known clinical trials going on globally, uh, uh, over 300 of which are earlier stage phase one, uh, nearly two-thirds, nearly 600 or so, uh, sort of phase two, if you will, and, and nearly 100 uh, in phase three development, which is wonderful because it uh, strongly suggests that we're on track to see a number of new regulatory approvals of regenerative medicine products uh, in the near term. So um, it's, a, it's a remarkable number of, of patients that could be positively affected by uh, all these therapeutics. On the financing side, uh, again, a, another year of significant advancement, um, more than, uh, uh, well, let's see, a bit over $13 billion in total global financing uh, for the field, uh, up over 70% from the 2017 numbers. So, um, and uh, you could see uh, gene-based therapy specifically nearly 10 billion, cell therapy nearly 8 billion, tissue engineering nearly a billion. So uh, really impressive numbers. And they, they do, you know, uh, also represent a combination of different sources of funding. So whether it's uh, venture capital investment uh, in private companies, um, public uh, funding, uh, publicly traded companies raising money, corporate partnerships. Uh, it's been an interesting trend to see more and more large companies get interested in the space. And you see that represented both in partnerships and uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, of which there were a couple notable ones uh, in 2018. So uh, significant momentum in, on all fronts, uh, uh, clinical development as well as uh, financial. Uh, a large portion of the pipeline relates to oncology. There are two divides I think about in this industry. One is oncology versus monogenic diseases. The other is large pharmaceutical companies developing things like CAR T cells versus more innovative entrepreneurial companies like your own developing gene therapies. I'm wondering, given that, is there any kind of a divide in the industry in terms of agenda? Are, are companies aligned on what's needed for this sector to be successful? Well, I actually think there's a, a reasonable degree of alignment despite the sort of growing breadth of companies in space. Uh, you're right that the clear focus of most of the products in development are on, uh, in the gene therapy space, monogenic rare diseases, and in the cell therapy space, it's mostly oncology targets. Um, you know, 
we've only in 2018 gotten to a place where there's some overlap beginning to, to uh, be observed amongst uh, companies going after the same target. Uh, but, you know, despite the fact that some of those companies, some of the companies in the space are, are larger, um, I don't feel concerned about differing agendas per se. I think there's a broad uh, enthusiasm for uh, advancing uh, these different scientific approaches for very tough uh, medical targets, trying to get, uh, you know, get these products to patients uh, successfully, which is its own challenge, uh, and that's something to spend time on as well, is not just the research and development activities, but also the importance of some of the more commercial-oriented challenges that we face. So uh, this could change over time as you see more and more large companies get involved. But to date, uh, I think uh, it's definitely been a field largely influenced by a, a rising tide lifts all boats mentality. And this is a, a field that's emerged in many ways out of the biopharmaceutical industry. I'm wondering, as it grows and as products move to a commercial stage, whether there's any sense of new business models emerging in terms of manufacturing and delivery, and whether using a kind of drug company model makes the best sense for something like a gene therapy? Well, there's certainly multiple aspects of uh, commercialization of these products that are unique challenges that need to be solved. Um, I would say that uh, the number one on most people's list, and it's a, a source of great conversation, is, is market access and specifically sort of the uh, reimbursement, pricing and reimbursement structures that may uh, make good sense for products like this. Uh, it's safe to say that um, in the United States in particular, we don't today have a system in place that that uh, ensures uh, rapid market access for patients. It's just not a system of payment uh, that's uh, intended for or designed for a single one-time treatment to produce years and years of benefit. So we have work to do to uh, establish alternative payment structures and give uh, manufacturers uh, the option to come up with a more creative uh, approach such as payment over time that may be dependent on outcomes that are observed in a patient. And this sort of approach uh, hopefully and I think will work for every constituent involved including payers, both private and public, um, uh, and manufacturers to ensure optimal market access. So there's the pricing and reimbursement structures that need attention. The good news is there's a tremendous number of conversations happening. Uh, there's a lot of creative ideas uh, being explored. Uh, those uh, few companies that have gotten to the commercial stage have uh, been uh, already been attempting some of those unique structures, but there's more work to be done, and it may require um, legislation in the end, in particular with an eye towards giving CMS the power uh, on the government side to be creative and uh, come up with alternative approaches for these types of products. On the operating side, uh, even in the clinical setting, uh, there's work to be done to best understand how to deliver these products to patients uh, and how to ensure proper patient follow-up. Uh, it's really very unique. So the current system of care for patients uh, that would normally get a medicine for a genetic disease or for their cancer is not set up for 
such a product as a CAR-T or an AAV gene therapy. So we have work to do to, to collaborate with the treatment centers uh, to ensure that they're um, well set up and to find a way to incentivize patients to continue with data collection over time so that we can uh, not just fulfill obligations that will be important for uh, payment or uh, FDA, but also for, uh, for all the manufacturers who just want to know how their patients are doing and, and share that information broadly with the public over time. Uh, finally, manufacturing is a key, key aspect for the field. It's uh, uh, an area where there's great complexity. Uh, the science is evolving rapidly, and it requires a, a significant investment, whether you're in uh, cell therapy products that require ex vivo manipulation of patient cells uh, or uh, AAV gene therapy. Uh, manufacturing is a challenge, but one that uh, the industry is tackling aggressively. Some companies have chosen to invest heavily internally, such as Audentes. Um, others are relying on contract manufacturers who are significantly ramping up their efforts as well. So, uh, But that's another key aspect of the success in the future, so commercial success in the future, and ensuring patients get access to these things is just very simply the ability to make enough supply and deliver it in a timely manner to patients. It's widely expected that Novartis will win approval in March for its SMA gene therapy. They have not indicated how they'll price it. How closely watched is the pricing of this therapy, and, and what will it tell companies or, or the payer community about the future of gene therapy? Well, uh, I think every uh, cell or gene therapy product that approaches the market um, is going to get some scrutiny right now just because there's so few examples to lean on, uh, Spark selling Luxturna uh, or Novartis uh, selling Chimera. Um, these are, there's just so few examples, uh, but the more that we have, uh, the more uh, we'll be able to uh, learn and engage in dialogue about uh, what makes sense and, and what can maximize uh, market access. I think for Novartis uh, and the potential for an approval of the uh, AAV gene therapy for SMA, it'll certainly be closely watched. Novartis has um, entered into a dialogue and been very public about some of their thinking and the, the value they believe that product is bringing and what that might command in terms of a price point. Um, but where that ends up, it's hard to say exactly. I admire their willingness to engage in that conversation. Uh, because that's really what it takes. I think people need to understand uh, the value that these products can bring in a single one-hour infusion. If you can keep a child alive and off a ventilator and thriving and meeting motor milestones that they would never, ever achieve um, in their lives, uh, it's remarkable and it's very valuable. But uh, to try to pay for that all up front in one-time payment is challenging. And I think everyone understands that, and that's why we need to work so hard on the system around it. So we'll see where Novartis lands. My guess is that um, they'll come up with a number that they think makes sense. They'll probably try to be um, creative with some structuring of those payments, and, and we'll discuss that and we'll learn from that, and, and then we'll see what the next player uh, in the field does. And, and that will all help gain momentum for everyone involved. Well, one of the advantages I think Novartis has here is that they've – got a product that has the potential to eliminate the need for a very expensive drug that's chronically administered. 
uh, it strengthens their their case for uh, a direct economic impact. What happens in the case of a gene therapy that's treating a disease for which there is no treatment, and that same type of economic argument may not be as easily made? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting. Uh situation for those companies, but it's not uncharted waters. I mean, so many of the rare disease products that are out there uh, are for diseases that never had a treatment before them. And um, and so companies have worked to uh, educate in the past to, to help support their pricing models and discussions. And in this case, it's particularly unique because it's gene therapy, so it has this added element of of a one-time administration, but really the onus is on the manufacturer, and, and we're a good example of this because we work in our lead indication for a severe neuromuscular disease called myotubular myopathy, for which there's no treatment. Uh, it's a fatal disease with uh, a life expectancy for half the boys. It's X-linked, so boys only, uh, of only about two years of life. And and um, on and what we're doing, and an example of what I think every company in our situation will need to do is, we're spending the time and effort to to understand the burden of this disease, the burden to the patient, the families, the the system. Uh, for example, we've learned how these boys are diagnosed reasonably rapidly in the first year of their life, uh, but often require uh, hospitalization in the a pediatric intensive care unit for much of the first year of their life. You can imagine how expensive that would be. They require mechanical ventilatory support their entire lives. They're in and out of the hospital after that first year with infections that they battle off related to their disease, so the cost of dealing with that over the years. Multiple surgeries often occur in these kids, so there's this amazing burden of the disease that one can begin to characterize and eventually try to put some numbers around, which helps uh, tell part of the story of the value uh, that your clinical treatment can bring. So so even when you don't have a benchmark like uh, there is in SMA or in hemophilia for that matter, which as you say facilitates a bit the conversation on pricing, um, there's work that can be done to still get to uh, a good answer. Um, it's maybe not quite as mathematical as one could do when there's an existing treatment already on the market. Uh, but it still can be very robust and compelling, and, and that's the sort of work we're doing in our in our programs, and I'm sure some of our fellow companies will do as well. Uh, we've certainly seen a, a fair bit of creativity with, with companies like Spark rolling out their gene therapy on terms of payment models. Do you think it's any more complicated doing that in the U.S. where there isn't a single-payer system and there is a fair bit of movement that, patients undergo from one insurer to the next? No question. There's no question that it's more complicated in the United States for that reason. Many patients uh, have medical coverage that involves a mixture of both uh, public and uh, private. Um, in particular, if you work in a disease like we do uh, with MTM, where many patients qualify for Medicaid support. Um, and, and then you have the added complexity of uh, families changing plans, uh, changing payers uh, over time. Maybe mom or dad changes a job, and that in turn changes their, from them from one payer to the other. So uh, that's part of the complexity of the, of the um, discussion that, that has to happen and is happening. I think uh, it's important to solve the, the public side of it, <clears throat> and I think that is actually 
where we'll see um, potentially see movement first. And what I mean by that is working with CMS to find a way to to come up with solutions that that uh, can influence how Medicaid can care for these patients. Perhaps um, perhaps you can explain that because I, I think we glossed over it, and I, I know there are restrictions legislatively on how CMS can reimburse. Can can you just explain to listeners why why legislation might be needed to address new payment models? Sure. Well, I think it mostly comes down to what are called price reporting requirements, and um, you know how. Uh, essentially, uh, the most famous of which is sort of best price, which is that you know you always have a you have a set price uh, that goes uh, to commercial payers, but then there's a predetermined discount that uh, CMS purchases the product at, or in this case Medicaid, and uh, it's always a discount off the best price. Now, if you come up with a payment over time model, uh, if you're discounting off the lowest number of a five-year payment plan, then it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem for reimbursement for the product for the manufacturer. So essentially, I think there's general consensus that the price reporting requirements as written today for CMS do not really practically allow for a payment over time option. And so uh, discussions are occurring about how um, certain types of products might be able to be excluded from those price reporting requirements at CMS, which would then in turn allow them to be more creative and collaborate with companies on a payment over time structure. So um, there's, that's the public side, and that's where your legislation may, be, may end up being necessary. CMS can do some pilot programs in the meantime that could be very productive. It's just a matter of, of really um, uh, the time and attention to put those in place, uh, amongst other things that they're focused on today's uh, the Washington, D.C. world. Um, there are, interestingly, states, Medicaid state organizations that are, um, are very interested in the topic as well and trying to engage directly with pay, with companies in, in this conversation, which is encouraging. And then on the private side, there are multiple payers. All the private payers are paying attention. They see the trend of the field, and they are engaging in conversation as well, some more than others. And I think you see, uh, for example, with uh, Spark and Luxterna, they've attempted to work with uh, Harvard Pilgrim in particular as an example of a firm that's attempting to be very engaged and creative as a part of uh, new payment structures. So, um, um, but the system we have in the U.S. back to bring back to your question and, and the complexities there are, are a big deal, and, and that's part of why. Um, the conversation is complex, but we have no choice. Right? We have no choice. It, it, this is the, a wave of the future. These one-time treatments uh, in the gene and cell therapy and tissue engineering community, are, they're, they're coming. More and more will come, and they're incredibly transformative for patients. And, and that's, in the end, what's most important is that patients get access to them. Uh, and what a, what a terrible failure it would be of our industry to, uh, if we succeeded in the difficulty of research and development, and we were able to actually understand the science, advance the medicine, do clinical trials, and get products approved, but then patients could not get access to them because there's no structure for payment or we don't solve the operational issues or the manufacturing issues. That's just not acceptable. And so, but I, the good news is I think everyone appreciates that and, and, uh, and that the conversations are happening, that questions are difficult and complex, but we can get there. Well, given that we are 
likely heading into a new public policy debate around the future of healthcare in the United States, as well as the pricing of therapies. Gene and cell therapies are new and, and I suspect poorly understood by the public at large and, and policymakers as well. What's the challenge for the industry and, and how are you addressing that? There's no question that that's true. Um, and uh, education is fundamental to the success of the field. Um, the things I'm talking about, about, uh, you know, working with CMS on pricing structures or uh, private payers or solving manufacturing challenges, those are all very important. But fundamental to uh, the field advancing is uh, basic education uh, for the public and for lawmakers in particular. Uh, in, importantly, in, in particular in, in today's world where there is uh, rightfully um, concern about drug pricing and, and uh, how we can ensure that uh, patients are not overly burdened in, in this system. And uh, so we have to do, we have to educate and inform uh, lawmakers in particular so that the solutions that we come up with uh, to uh, rein in problems with drug pricing in the United States do not inhibit uh, innovation and the advancement of the most important uh, therapies uh, that are in development and that can transform the lives of patients. And gene and cell therapy products are the best example of that. Uh, surely we can come up with answers to uh, improve our approach to, uh, you know, price increase policies or generic versions of drugs and how quickly they become available. These are right. For, these are things that do need do deserve discussion and obviously are being discussed in Washington. Uh, but we need to make sure that uh, truly innovative therapies don't get caught up and restricted in that. And, and in the end, uh, that companies like mine uh, and others in our space can continue to thrive and do the work they're doing. Um, and that's the most important thing because that's how patients will get uh, treatment for that rare genetic disease that uh, otherwise there'd be no treatment for. Matt Patterson, Chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine and Chairman and CEO of Audentes Therapeutics. Matt. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.